This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street Grips. From comfort durability to grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. So check out renthal.com. Finally, motorbikes are back on the track, boys. We've got the Sepang Shakedown test is on at the minute and uh, we're recording this on the Monday evening. So we've already had one day of running and uh, David Emmett, you're just getting ready to gear up and head out to Sepang for the official test next week. Adam, I'm sure you're thinking... God, I'm really missing being low-jacked in Malaysia next week, but uh, you'll obviously be getting to a racetrack pretty soon as well. And uh, Neil, you're just going to just take it easy for a few days, probably. Uh, I would like to, Steve, yeah. I'll probably be keeping a close eye on things uh, uh, in Sepang, helping Dave and uh, one or two others on the ground with with transcripts and, and typing things up, keeping in uh, up to date with what everyone's saying. But um, yeah, I won't quite be going through the stress that uh, awaits David for uh, what it here. Yeah, I was going to say, Dave, there's quite a bit of stress for you to get yourself out to Malaysia. A lot of restrictions still in place for the test. Uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, obviously a PCR test to fly and a PCR test to be able to get in. But then uh, we're in a bubble, which means you can only stay in a particular hotel and you have to go through special channels. And um, uh, apparently the trick is to walk through the uh, airport shouting MotoGP, MotoGP, and everyone just points you in the correct direction and uh, and lets you get on with it. So, um I'm quite looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to it. I love tests. I love tests more than I love racing, probably, just because people have got all sorts of um, uh, weird stuff on. Isn't Dave, that how you, you always uh, go through airports, Dave? Shouting that? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but not usually MotoGP. Can't you just wear your hat, Dave, and then, you know, you won't have to say anything? Uh, well, yeah, but not all, unfortunately, not all uh, airport security people are uh, as uh, up to speed on um, uh, millinery matters, uh, mo- millinery MotoGP matters, uh, so they they don't always immediately recognise me. So Indonesia is going to be fine, Dave, because the massive MotoGP audience in Indonesia will all know about the hat. But probably, yes, yes, it's just a shame I'm not going. <laughs> um, obviously enough Dave you said uh, everyone getting up to speed we've already had one day of running and uh, Neil Raul Fernandez looks like he's straight away up to speed he was topping the timesheets in front of Michele Piero I think it was Mika Calio and Lorenzo Savadori third and fourth and then we had Remy Gardner the reigning Moto2 world champion up inside the top five as well yeah, it was impressive stuff from Fernandez. I know it's only the first day of the uh, the shakedown test, which precedes the official MotoGP testing. Um, there's two days of that uh, coming up um, this week. Um, but yeah, still really impressive stuff from Fernandez. Maybe not quite. Um, we can't read too much into to Gardner's performances just yet because he banged his wrist up quite badly um, about two weeks ago, I think. So he's obviously riding quite injured. And I think he was saying um, a few days ago just that... Um, Basically, he has to be very careful not to damage his wrist any further uh, in these runs um, through the, the, the kind of sprang test. But um, yeah, Fernandez, from what I could see, was was rapidly fast, even quicker than uh, Michele Perro, as you said, Steve, who's a, a veteran uh, MotoGP tester by now and, you know, some distance ahead of the, the next fastest rookie. So um, I think that uh, might be an indication of what is to come uh, this year with regards to the rookies. What do you think of this crop of rookies then, guys? Because obviously, Raul Fernandez jumping straight from Moto3 into Moto2 a single year and then onto a MotoGP bike. Remy Gardner's got a lot of experience. Bezeki stepping up as well. Digi Antonio making the move up. And uh, it looks like it's it's a good class of rookies, Neil. 
it is a good class of rookies. Yep. Um, I mean, you look back at the uh, probably the best class of rookies ever, and it's maybe not quite on that level. You think back to maybe 2019 when you had Quartararo and Joanne Mir stepping up at the same time. That was a pretty all-star cast. Uh, you think back to 2006 and you had um, a couple of real big hitters there, like uh, I think that was Stoner and Davizioso on that occasion, um, Christopher Mullen as well. All of those guys went on to do pretty interesting things in MotoGP. Um, and Pedroza as well. Yeah, exactly. Ad, yes. Um, I think Fernandez has... The, has everything in, that is needed to go right to the very way to the top. Um, and then with the other guys, we'll see just how far they can go. But um, yeah, you would certainly fancy Fernandez and Gardner to carry on their battle from last year into the this year's championship and just who can be the, the quickest rookie. I think that's, that's how I see it at the moment. I um, still um, have to understand exactly the potential of the other three, uh, Bezeki, Dejan Antonio and, and Darren Binder. But, um, uh, you know, I think all of them will impress at some point this year, no doubt. You know, I think it was, uh, you know, uh, Jove Poncharal in the KTM presentation in one of his interviews uh, talking about 2022 and there being a championship within a championship. So I think there's some real, you know, fiery potential among the rookies. Uh, you know, I mean, Rookie of the year, does the accolade actually mean that much? I think it, it's really relative, isn't it? If, you know, it depends on the opposition you have. Um, you know, if you have a caliber of rider like we'll see this season, then perhaps there is actually some bragging rights to be in the first of that kind of gaggle. Yeah, yeah I think that, I mean, yes, rookie of the year is meaningful. And especially, like Ad says, it depends on the strength of the opposition. If you're sort of, you know, I seem to remember a few years ago, there was like one rookie who came in and was automatically rookie of the year. And in that case, it doesn't really mean very much. Um, but there are strong riders. Uh, obviously, the, the Moto2 champion is, has moved up. Uh, well, Moto, the Moto2 won and two. So that, that means it's... And three. It's <laughs> there you go. The, the top three all moved up. That means that means it really does mean something. Um, but I think Raúl Fernández, especially. Uh, I mean, Fernandez is incredibly ambitious. He, he just exudes ambition. And I think he's going to be much more interested in, about where he finishes in the championship overall than uh, just where he finishes in, uh, compared to the other rookies. I, th I think they're more... Um, they really think that they are going to, uh, you know, that they, the really competitive riders, they expect to be best rookie. And then it's about, you know, how close are they to the championship? Maybe it's quite an obvious point, but do you think it's fair to say that MotoGP is in full flux transition at the moment? You know, the older generation have kind of gently seeged out of the of the class. You know, I know Andrea the Vizioso came back in. But, you know, the retirement of a couple of riders over the last three to four years has let these spaces, let these uh, saddles become available for young riders, you know, in an extreme form in the case of Darren Binder. I mean, it's if you look at the the, the people who were left in there, I think uh, Alessio Spargaro is the oldest now and he's, what, 30... Two thirty-three. Dovizioso, I think, Div. Oh yeah. Apart from Dovizioso, yeah. Sorry. Apart from Dovizioso, who, who's come back in, um, uh, Alessio Spargaro is thirty-two. That's still quite young if you uh, think about sort of recent years where we've had a, a bunch of riders sort of race on until their mid-thirties, uh, and then obviously you know Valentino Rossi. But uh, you know, leave out Andrea Dovizioso, and and it's an incredibly young field. There's only a few. There's only a handful of riders who, who are you know thirty and above. So it, it, it's a real passing of the generation. And 
I think we're also getting to the point where it's almost that, you know, they're kicking young riders out very, very, or quite early. You know, if you haven't made it by sort of 27, 28, people are starting to think that you're quite old. We're looking at Mark Marquez, who's what, 28, 29, as, um, uh, as an elder statesman. And, you know, 28 is young. Yeah, because I think they've, you have to look at, obviously, for us in World Superbikes, we're looking at Iker Lekwona coming across. And last week we had Danilo Petrucci on the pod. And there's two riders that, uh, obviously, Petrucci, a race winner in MotoGP. Lekwona, the second half of last year, really impressive. But it's really a case of, at the specific moment in time, what can you do for a manufacturer? And they, they are a little bit impatient. Lekwona came really good the second half of the year. No seat left for him to to take up. And I think that's where you see that little bit of impatience because we're at the stage of the year now where traditionally Maverick Vinales would have been confirmed on a, on a new multiple year Yamaha contract. You'd have <laughs> a lot of the seats all getting filled up at this stage. And once they get filled up now, it means that if someone comes good six, seven, eight, nine races into the season, it's probably too late for them. Steve, I like the way that you just cut straight into the podcast in the first 10 minutes with that cynicism, you know, that's the first dose, you know, and it's tied with Maverick Vinales, which, you know, is starting to get a little I've bit harsh. I've been on my holidays now. ad, you know, I've got to catch up <laughs> after the last few weeks. I've got, I've got another question as well. I mean, there's only two riders on the grid who have won titles in Moto2 and Moto3. I mean, do you think people are in so much of a hurry now to get into MotoGP that you know they're skipping over these essential stages i know it's a a subject we've bounced around with jack miller and obviously it's hanging heavily over darren binder's head but um guys are, are not hanging around thinking i i need to complete these these steps before jumping up like the marquez brothers have done i don't think it's um I've, certainly like motor three is is a category in and of itself it's a it's a very peculiar category because you're you're learning the, you know, skills which don't necessarily transfer elsewhere. I think this is something we've discussed at length before about, um, you know, you're learning about following, you're, you're not learning about recovering from mistakes and that sort of thing. Um, uh, Motor T seems to be a more useful and productive um, uh, class. But even so, uh, I mean, in the end, if, if your objective is to be in MotoGP, the, the sooner you are in MotoGP, the more chance you have to actually learn. Uh, the, the the more chance that you have to actually uh, adapt and pick up the skills and you know the best way to learn about riding a MotoGP bike is by riding a MotoGP bike. Mr. Jason Thomas, how are hey you guys? Doing? How are you? Good, good to see you. Yeah, you too. You too. Appreciate uh, you guys working around my uh, my schedule here. Still uh, still morning, but I'm uh, I'm up early, so we're here at the office already. Good stuff. You were uh, you were in Anaheim too. You were there on yeah. site, or yeah, I was. Okay, I was. Yeah, yeah. Good times. JT, what's um just before we talk about MotoGP, what's your take so far on Supercross? Because four winners, it's a little bit like um, you know, uh, what we saw is maybe in MXGP, um, also in phases of MotoGP last year, where there's no kind of clear favorite coming to the fore yet. I mean, I know people mm -hmm. have been very impressed with the likes of Jason Anderson on the factory Kawasaki. Uh, Eli Tomac had a big team switch. Um, aside from, you know, the, the lack of predictable results or form, it seems like the only other talking points are how difficult the tracks have been in, in, in California so far. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, you know, we really... I think the sport needed some parity and we needed, uh, I think some of the, some of the guys that we knew could rise to this level to get back to relevancy. Um, they, 
you know, some of these guys, you know, Jason Anderson, the former champion, and we all knew that he could be on this level again, but what was the missing ingredient? Uh, and then you have some, some of the younger crew, the Chase Sextons. Unfortunately, we lost Adam Cincerola, but some of them we've been waiting. We knew their time was coming, but was it going to be 2022? Was it going to be 2023? And it seems like we just have this perfect storm of past champions being on their best form. Uh, you know, the, the current guard, the old guard kind of still being in their prime. And then now we're getting some of the younger, the younger crew that they're, they're feeling like it's time for their maturity to really step up. So it, it's kind of, uh, I think we might be entering a golden era here for the next couple of years because we are, we will lose the Eli Tomax and some of these guys soon. But I think for the next two years, we have a, a real opportunity for some of the best, best racing throughout the top 10 uh, that we've seen in a long time. JT, um, I know you're, you know, a, a big figure in the US, you know, motorcycle industry, especially in Supercross. I mean, especially with media work as well. I mean, you're doing your fair share of podcasting, but I know you're Trying. also a big, yeah. mo- <laughs> I know you're a big <laughs> MotoGP fan. So that's why it's cool to have you on the podcast. Um, you're also the only person on this podcast to have ridden a Valentino's Rossi, uh, his ranch. So yep. um, when was that? How did it happen? And what was it like? Yeah, so that was uh, 2014. And uh, initially, it was just a text message it started it all. Uh, Chad Reed texted a, a group of us, his you know, close friends, myself, uh, you know, former factory Supercross star Michael Byrne, and then uh, one of our other close friends who actually ended up working for Chad as well, and said, hey, we're, we're going to Europe. Um, whoever can go, start working on it and start packing. Um, because he had this plan to... We were going to visit uh, Mizano for uh, MotoGP. There was an opportunity where, and this is back before, you know, uh, Valentino and, and Mark Marquez had their rivalry at all. Uh, Mark was just kind of emerging onto the scene. So Mark was going to be there. Bradley Smith was going to be there. Like everybody was going there for the week after uh, Mizano. He's like, we're, we're going, I'm going. If anybody wants to come along, you're welcome. Uh, and then there was a, a weekend off where everyone would, uh, you know, rendezvous at, at Valentino's place. And then the following weekend behind that was the motocross of nations in Latvia. So it was a three week trip all in all, you know, there was MotoGP, then the Valentino, we actually rode there twice, uh, on Tuesday and then Saturday. And then we followed that up with motocross of nations, which also involved staying at Tony Cairoli's place the following week. So when he laid out this itinerary, I was like, I will do, I'll quit my job if I have to, to make, to make this work. Right. It was like, there were all these things in there that I never, ever thought I would get to do and see and do all these things. So, um, for me, it was a no brainer. And I think I was probably the the least likely to be able to do it because I actually had a real job where these other guys were like, yeah, we could probably do that. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to use all my vacation, all my holiday, all my sick pay, all everything to make this work. Um, but thankfully you know, I work at a, a power sports company. And when I laid all of these th- things out and the way that this could benefit and the networking opportunities, you know, I don't, I don't want to say that it was a no brainer for them, but they understood that if I was willing to sacrifice some on my end, that, you know, there may be some, uh, some, some residual benefit, uh, on their end as well. So, I mean, the trip of a lifetime, it's really hard to summarize it quickly. Um, you know, you, it was my first, to start out with, it was my first MotoGP event in Mizano, right? And then that's Valley's home race. And we were, you know, we're guests. And, and uh, Chad Reed is very good friends with 
uh, Brent and Alex Briggs and those guys that were, you know, his longtime uh, mechanics uh, for, for Valley. So, of course, we're in the garage and, and we have really close access for the weekend. Then Valentino goes out and wins on the weekend, right? Which was kind of out of nowhere. He was, I don't want to say all form, but it, it was a surprise win uh, that, that weekend. So that really was kind of the, the kickstart for just this incredible week. Because as you know, like that's the home race. Then for him to win, the mood for everyone was just unbelievable for the next, you know, two weeks while they have this, this off period. So, um, yeah, I mean, and of course you can ask questions or whatever, but I mean, everything you would ever expect about that ranch and how professionally it's run and, uh, just the opportunity to ride with all of those guys too, because it was a who's who of not only MotoGP, but Moto2, Moto3, and also World Superbike guys were there as well. Um, so it was a pretty wild experience and I, and I felt very out of place, uh, for one, I, I felt <laughs> like I, I shouldn't be here. These guys are, uh, way out of my league as far as even being here. Uh, but just the amount of motorcycle talent that was on display there, you know, and, and it was nobody's, uh, chosen expertise, you know, we're riding flat track and doing all these things, but those guys can, can really, really impress on a, on a flat track machine as well. Uh, you say it's you're running flat track, but actually having seen the the ranch, it's not really flat at all. It's uh, no. you know the, the side of a hill. It's up and it's also in its left and its right, and the bikes are quite uh, specific as well. I think I mean they're using flat track tires. If I if I remember correctly, uh, yeah. do they have a front brake on or not? They do. They do. So uh, they're basically just modified motocross bikes, and not only that, but the parts of the, of the track that, you know, have the elevation changes, they took the, a former motocross track and converted it into a flat track. So that's where you're getting the elevation and all these things, because Valley said, if, if I can learn to maneuver the bike and have more feel, not only on just, you know, oval type flat track stuff, but in and out of corners. And, and I, I think he's, uh, he, he was trying to always keep up with younger guys, right? Uh, Mark Marquez and these younger riders changed how these guys have to ride MotoGP. So I think he was like, I need to keep adapting. And this was a great way to go about it. But I, that was, for me, was the, the most exciting part of it was it was a motocross layout in certain sections. But yeah, we're on, you know, modified motocross bikes with, you know, the bigger brakes and, and you know, flat track tires and all this stuff. So I felt at home because it was a motocross bike that I'd always been used to, but it was also my first time riding flat track. So there was a, a lot of learning that, on my side that had to go on as well. Because also the layout is, is uh, there's a real mixture of corners, you know, left, right, tight, sweeping, the whole thing. There's, there's, there's such an enormous sort of variety. Yes, yes, there is. And, and there's a, a dedicated section that looks like it could be a flat track speedway. There are several ovals that kind of tie in together. However, they have them laid out that particular day. And then that connects to an entirely different section of the property that was the former motocross track. So that's what makes it really cool is you get into this really slow, tight stuff that was the motocross track. And then you get into this really fast. Uh, and it, honestly, it was stuff that I was not really comfortable with. I, I got better, especially the second, uh, second visit. Um, just started to understand how to really approach it because it was such a unique and completely different style of riding than I was ever used to. 
um, you know, to let the rear slide that far and, and to get comfortable with that and not feel like you're about to high side because you don't have knobbies that are about to catch and flip you over. It, it's just a, such a different discipline. Um, but to learn that side and to understand how they approach racing versus standard motocross guys would approach racing. It, it was a, it was a really cool learning experience. And, and honestly, you learn so much respect for their talent, right? You know, and, and I think that's what's really cool about both disciplines is when, you know, the MotoGP guys come over to Supercross, I think they're like, wow, this is so great and impressive and everything. And then that, that same sentiment is shared when Supercross guys, and it, of course, before, you know, Indianapolis or Lugana Seca were very easy, but, or Austin as well now, but to go to Europe and to watch them and their element and the things that they can do with this heavy, you know, MotoGP bike that is not very maneuverable. And you just see how, how well they adapt to that. I mean, we're all awestruck at the same time. JT, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that event in 2014, according to many people, was where the relationship between Valentino and, and Mark soared or began to soar. I think Mark showed up with his own bike and with his own factory HRC technicians, and that maybe didn't go down so well with uh, with Valentino. I mean, was there any kind of hint of that when you were there? So it seemed really uh, everybody was in a good mood. Um, I, I do remember that very vividly, though. Uh, you know, everyone was there riding and seemingly enjoying the day. But for Mark, it was very much a business day. Uh, they were testing and going over settings and it seemed like they were preparing for a, a world flat track event. Like it was not a, we're here to hang out and, and enjoy an off day and, and have some fun riding motorcycles. That was not uh, the feeling I had at all. So it, it's hard for me to know what Valentino was thinking at the time. Um, but I do remember very much when so we were, we were speaking about it because it, it was strange. We had kind of the uh, English-speaking crew that was together, myself and Chad and Bradley Smith and a few guys. And then there was the VR46 Academy that they were all doing their thing and Valley was working with them and they were, you know, doing, speaking Italian and, and working on their things. And then Mark was off by himself with his HRC crew and there wasn't a lot of mixing. Um, and, and that was, yeah, I'll, I'll never forget how separated Mark was in his own element and for me, it was pure fun. I was just there to have a good time. And Mark was locked into, you know, it was business. It was, we're, we're here to get better and we're here to work on the motorcycle. And uh, there wasn't a lot of joking around on his side. So I could understand if Valley was taken aback a little bit at that with the invitation, thinking it would be a little bit more fun than a, than a full test session. Um, but it, that's what it felt like. Yeah, it's funny. There's a story... Uh, about the Super Prestigio, the indoor flat track event, which Mark Mark has organized. And the very first year, uh, it was him up against, I think, Brad uh, Brad Baker. Right, know, right. The, be the best flat track rider in the world. Um, uh, you know, Mark Marcus finishes second to him. Uh, and afterwards, he came out, uh, you know, all sort of smiling and all the rest of it. But I heard that he was off in a tunnel immediately after losing it, actually, absolutely losing his mind and being just so furious that right. he hadn't been able to win this. And that level of just like ambition and competitiveness is is what marks him out for me. It, it's just 
it's insane, really. It's just really being so dedicated to winning, um, doing everything to win, and you know everything always matters. Uh, uh, and that seems to be so. It doesn't surprise me that he sort of you know he turn up with his HRC crew and they'd be going through settings and, and pouring over data and all the rest of it because you know every time he gets on a motorbike, um, he doesn't he he never does it for fun. The fun is right. in beating people. So I wonder if. And this would be a question much more for you guys than for me, but with all the struggles he's had, you know, he's going through injuries, then this last vision problem that, you know, popped up again. Would you guys say that that's the same? Would he would in those, those moments where surely he's gained more perspective, he's older, he's won all of these world championships. And I, I would guess that these injuries have, probably made him slow down a little bit and understand a, a bigger picture than just win, win, win every time. That's all that matters. You know, that there, I've always found that as people are forced to step away, they're forced to sit at home and spend time with family. I wonder if he would approach those things the same way, or would he maybe enjoy things a little more? Like, would he have that same reaction to getting second to Brad Baker? Or would he say, this was an amazing time. This is a great experience. In the in the big picture, getting second in this flat track event means nothing to my legacy, to you know anything. Um, I, I always wonder, you know, has he gained any sort of different perspective on life and racing? You know, over over. I mean, it's it's been a struggle for the last couple of years. I think anybody would agree with that. Yeah, I, I doubt he has though, because with Mark, you look at last year, he came back in obviously after having his his arm injuries, but he came back in and just crashed his brains out you know he was willing to push absolutely to the limit at all times i think the best example of it we had was probably le mans whenever everyone came into pit lane and he was still overtaking riders on the on the way into pit road you know he he's he's driven unlike anyone else that we've ever seen and even if he takes it back a peg even if he's got that sense of perspective the only thing that's going to make him have more perspective is if he's got a rival that he actually views as being good enough to beat him and then even at that stage, that's whenever he's going to be digging in even further. I think someone like Mark, you're just going to see that the injuries could easily continue to mount up for him, but it's going to be because he's going to keep pushing as hard as ever. I think what we've seen from Mark over the last 18 months is that he's gone from being the best rider we'll ever see to, you know, two thirds of the season being just a MotoGP rider. Mm -hmm. And then three or four races a year, he's still Mark Marquez. Yeah, I, I really loved uh, watching him returning and he, and he clearly wasn't at his best form but even the gamesmanship with Peko and you know going out and qualifying laps and and there was he still thinks he's in the championship hunt and he was nowhere near it yet but he's playing all of the games like he would and and trying to yeah I don't know if it's intimidation but certainly trying to be in in these guys head as they go out there um that stuff to me, you can see he's still like, I'm going to be champion again. I'm sure in his heart of hearts going into the season, he believes he'll be champion and and that's all yet to be determined. But I, I would agree with you. The level of competitor he is doesn't come along all that often. But if you think about the way that he's approached his actual recovery, it's the same. He's showing, you know, he's, he's, he's He's treated it like a battle, like, you know, like, like a race, like more competition, you know, like I'm injured and therefore I'm going to come back. Um, and it, it goes against sort of everything inside of him, but he still put in the work. I know that, you know, when he was doing his, his shoulders and stuff, 
it, he was doing something like you know three or six hours of, of physio every day, and then also and then training and all sorts of other things, uh, and he was just as competitive in that as as anything else. I think he, he, his entire personality seems to revolve around. Uh, sort of competition. He's so driven. I mean, in a way, I really would have liked to have seen him race McDoan because I think like Marquez versus Doan, two people who lived only to win, like that was their their absolute focus was just beating other people. It was the the thing which gave them joy in their life. And I think that would have been an absolutely fascinating uh, contest. Just uh, one last thing before we take an ad break on the show, JT. I was just going to ask you, obviously, your relationship with Chad Reed, we already talked about it a little bit earlier, but that's probably a decent enough comparison to Mark as well, because obviously Chad, for fans on the outside, it looked like stuck around those extra few years just you know, with his own team, all those different things, just to make sure he was still racing. But guys at that level, they don't want to give it up. Yeah, and I, I, I got to watch that transition firsthand with Chad where he went from arguably the the best rider in the sport. And, you know, there was Ricky Carmichael and James Stewart was in that mix as well, where he had to come to terms with, you know, that, that time has passed me by. And, you know, he, he raced for so long over the, the span of a couple of decades that he had to work through that approach. And he, he was very much the same as Mark Marquez and where it was anything to win and winning was the only thing that mattered. And it, it really absorbed his life into a place where, I think he genuinely, genuinely enjoyed being Chad Reed and he was able to gain some perspective and take a second to realize that this wasn't always going to be here. These opportunities weren't always going to be around. And if he got sixth and not first, that's okay. His legacy has already been built. Everyone's going to always remember Chad Reed as a champion. So I guess that's part of why I'm wondering if Mark Marquez ever gets there or is it only winning winning is the only acceptable result everything else is failure. And, and that's I guess that's a personal journey that each of these guys have to walk through but for Chad Reed it probably took until he was 33, 34, 35 years old to get there but it, it that day finally arrived. Yeah, well, Mark has got another 5 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I think he can win. Yeah, it's also nice to hear some of the riders. I mean even Jan Zarko two years ago was saying that to, to be able to ride a motorcycle at 350 k's an hour is, is like a treat it's a privilege it's something extraordinary and you know it shouldn't really be taken for granted and that that kind of normal perspective on it is, is rare sometimes like you say you do get lost in the search for all the trophies and the bonuses mm -hmm. and whatever else yeah agreed yeah you'd, you'd wonder as well whether or not that sense of perspective is a good thing as well to add because you look at all the top riders, whether it's in World Superbikes, MotoGP, Motocross, Supercross, they're not that connected to reality. So um, <laughs> there's got to be something that comes from that as well. And like, obviously for you, JT, whenever you were, what, 15, 16 years racing as a pro in the US, you would have seen all types of people. But the vast majority that were able to hit the front and stay at the front probably didn't have that sense of perspective of, oh, I'm the luckiest man in the world. It was this is what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to just make sure I'm going to go out and keep winning. Yeah, and, and those guys, especially the elite, um, they live in, in a vacuum. Um, the rest of the outside world, I don't think they're always very aware of what's going on around them. You know, there is such tunnel vision of the training program that they're on. Where's the next event? When do I have to be ready for it? Uh, and they have 
people that are on staff and around them to deal with everything else. They're, every detail is handled for them. So when they wake up, they have a training program, ha- they have things that they need to execute. So when they arrive on the weekend, wherever that event may be, they're at their very best. And everything else, ev- all the noise, all the distractions, everything else is typically filtered through someone else. And you can go through history and you know, you could, I could name off these people that no one's ever heard of that were, that was the person, right? If you needed to contact this rider, you talk to, you know, Scott Taylor for Ricky Carmichael. And there was no going to Ricky Carmichael. You talked to Scott Taylor because Ricky couldn't be distracted and couldn't deal with any of that. He didn't want to know about, you know, uh, media appearances or any of that. He would be told where to go, but it, it was very, very strict on making sure that these guys stay on task all the time and they become, you know, and, and a side note on that, you know, Alden Baker, you know, the most successful trainer that, uh, you know, supercross and motocross has ever seen. He is very big on that. No distractions, no outside influence. Uh, and we are going to create motocross and supercross machines. That's really his goal. He wants to create robots that you press a button they execute, they perform, and that's all there is, you know? So they go through the same process every single day in hopes of when they show up to an event and it's time to perform their body and their minds have been programmed to just execute. They're just like a computer program. We're executing an order executing a command. And, uh, you, you've seen that year in and year out with his athletes race day is the easiest day of the week because they've done this for months and months on end. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned the Alden Baker factory as well, JT, because I wanted to talk to you about that after the break. We're going to take a quick break on the show. We've managed to get ourselves into a bit of tunnel vision. We've forgotten the better sponsors. So let's hear from them. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And like I said before the break, JT, I wanted to just ask you about Alden Baker because I think the comparison between that and for us in the road race inside the VR46 Academy it couldn't seem more stark from the outside. It really always looks like the VO46 Academy working together, everyone in it together, trying to make each other better. Whereas the Alden Baker School, it always looks like it's, like you said, just trying to make sure you're manufacturing a superstar. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty interesting because I, I had a unique perspective on Alden's program. Uh, I was very good friends with Ricky Carmichael growing up. I, I've known him since I was seven or eight years old. and when he, you know, he began working with Alden so early in his career, uh, going back to 2000, when Alden be- got involved in motocross, his, his first athlete was Ricky Carmichael in the motocross world, which we all know how that ended, you know, most successful rider when you account for supercross and motocross we've ever seen. Uh, but I think Alden brought in a level of discipline and structure that our sport had never really seen before. And there have been many trainers that have mimicked it. Um, you know, I went through that program. Not only did I, you know, in spurts, right. I I would go spend a week there, you know, come back, spend another week. So I got to live through it, but it really is an incredibly repetitive 
process. You know, there's, it's, it's not an exciting program, uh, but it is relentless and you do the same things and it, it's a lot of hard work. Uh, there's a lot of suffering that goes on, you know, it just it, relentless training, but it's the same thing day in and day out over and over and over, over the course of the months. And I don't even think that the athletes realize the improvements that they're gaining. And then they wake up in a few months and they're 15 pounds lighter. They're two seconds quicker on the same racetrack that they, than they were, you know, two months prior. And all of a sudden he's molded these athletes into their at peak performance. And it's systematic there. There's a program that Alden has drawn up and he knows that it's going to be a slow burn to get these guys where they need to be. And then you, you know, you look back over the results over the last 20 years and it's just champion after champion after champion. So I'm curious to see, uh, for me, you know, I was, I was fortunate enough to go and, and see the VR 46 Academy and their facilities and do all those things. Um, I, I would be curious to see how they enact that, right. Are, are the, the people that are structuring the programs for these guys, is it that rigid? Is it, is it the same? And, and maybe you guys know that. Um, but there are, there are certainly some parallels there. Uh, were there uh, riders for who it didn't work? Because we see, I mean, the, what comes to mind immediately is Aki Ayo. Aki Ayo has mm -hmm. been incredible at producing talent. Um, I mean, you know, the, the list as long as, long as your arm. Sure. Uh, but then you see a rider like, for example, Nico Antonelli, who went there. I, I remember Aki Ayo being really excited about having him, and he failed. He, he just didn't fit into that program. And I think Aki has this very similar sort of very, very structured um, uh, approach quite a serious approach um and that works for some people and it doesn't work for others did, did alden baker have something similar sure uh you know you could go through the the list of riders from jake weimer to tyler rattray um, and and there were others throughout the years that whether the results didn't happen you know there, there were several of those and there were also champions ken roxon adam cincerillo and others that decided this program isn't for me and I think to me, the more curious is the riders that wanted to be there and stayed and it didn't work because I don't know that there is a, just one answer. Right. And I, I just don't think something didn't click there and, and maybe Alden, you know, could, could tell us exactly what didn't work, but the results never came. They just, it did, did not work in the case of the Ken Roxons, the Adam Cincerillo's and more recently uh, Marvin Muscan and Cooper Webb have just departed coming off of incredible, you know, Cooper Webb is your defending supercross champion and decided to leave on his, on his own accord. And that sent a, a shockwave through the industry because, you know, Pitt Byer, uh, you know, John Hines, Roger Coster, Ian Harrison, none of these guys, the brass of KTM were okay with this decision. They, they were very much against Cooper Webb departing. You have, you know, a huge investment in him. He's your, you know, running around the, the country with the number one plate. He is your defending champion and he is going to fundamentally change his, his program. He's going to be practicing in a different place. He's going to ru be running his own training program now, uh, not away from the tutelage of, again, the most successful trainer the sport has ever seen. I think KTM that that's, they would be like, why, why would we do this? Everything is working. We have 
the perfect scenario in front of us to continue on with success. So that's an ongoing story within the Supercross world right now. And I think Cooper Webb, by doing that, has added a lot of pressure that would not have been there. Uh, he, he created this scenario around him where if he's unable to back that series up, it doesn't matter if it's a new motorcycle that is the issue. It doesn't matter if he just had a bad year, right? Things didn't work out the same. Everyone, including the people that pay him and support him, are going to point to that decision and say that's the reason, and it, and it may not be. It really is a case of horses for courses, isn't it? I remember, um, you know, Alden also worked with Nicky Hayden, I think, for a year or two. Um, but then, you know, I think he explained to me in an interview once that the program and, and the system for road racing wasn't quite the fit that he had recognized for supercross and motocross. Um, it was a different kind of intensity where the guys are riding a lot more during the week, whereas we've discussed on the podcast and, and in media circles many times to replicate the feeling of MotoGP is, is such a, a difficult thing. I mean... Uh, we talked about the Super Prestigio uh, earlier, JT, which of course happened in Barcelona, uh, where you won the Supercross. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I remember, co remember covering, uh, you know, and like Steve pointed out, you know, you have a very uh, long and respected career, like at the top level. I mean, you've, you've done Anaheim one, you've done all the top Supercross races. One of the things we get some people following MotoGP and following our you know paddock podcast is they, they want to know why riders are taking such risks training in motocross. I mean, the injuries we see, Remy Gardner being the latest one, he didn't even crash his motocross bike. It was apparently just from a heavy landing and he kind of fractured his wrist. And then, of course, Mark's injuries, um, you know, riding enduro on the latest one, but it wasn't quite motocross. Um, you know, from your perspective, you know, do these guys, you know, essentially need that off-road discipline just to keep sharp? Um, or is it something they're exaggerating too much? See, I, I personally don't think there are many things to be gained from riding motocross for their discipline. Um, they would know much better than I would, but personally, I think they do it because they want to, and they think it's fun. And then they are, they're creating ways to say, oh, well, it helps me with this and helps me with that. To me, uh, the way you corner sticking your leg out there, there's so many things that are just so different about how you would approach riding the motorcycle. Uh, I believe that being a, a very proficient flat track athlete would be much more help, uh, the way the tire spins up and drifting with both tires and all the things that would be able to transfer over to road racing to me would make much more sense. Again, I, I think guys like Jack Miller, we saw Valentino guy had broke his leg or, you know, riding motocross when you factor in the risk, which is pretty high. Uh, you know, obviously Dovey, we saw him break his collarbone riding last year. Right. So it's, it's a pretty, there's a lot of evidence to support the fact that these guys are, are going to injure themselves at some point riding motocross. And then when I look at the fact, is it really contributing to their success on a, on a MotoGP machine? And I, I don't really think it is. I would say probably not. I, if I was a, if I was a team principal or a decision maker on a team, I would be begging them to not ride motocross. Yeah, because I think for for the big thing with it is, like you said, JT, they do it because they want to do it. Yeah, you look at most other sports. Like, Ad, you're a big football fan. You look at footballers when they finish training at twelve o'clock. What are they doing? They might do an extra half an hour, an hour in the gym, a bit of free kick practices. That actually worked out quite well for Adam's son at the weekend. It must be said as well. <laughs> but um, 
they'll do that and then the hordes of footballers that are gambling addicts alcoholics all these things because they can't fill their time every racer is an absolute type a category category personality so all of them need something that's going to fill their time motocross is great for them because it's the best workout they feel they can have it's all the all the great elements that they want to have in their day but it's also got that big risk and like you said jt the big thing could be flat track could be supermoto it could be this it could be that but because mark marquez is a great moto is a great motocross rider everyone else probably feels pressure to push themselves down the motocross route because that's what the best guy in the world's doing as well yeah, and I think you nailed that. You look at, uh, you know, Davizioso. He he truly loves motocross. Uh, I, I spoke with him at uh, Majora MXGP last year. He he's traveling far out of his way to attend these events. He, you know, he's been at uh, Anaheim Supercross several times. I think they are searching for ways to justify something that they really want to do, and when it really comes down to it. It's always funny whenever Adam turns up to a race because, you know, Dovizioso doesn't really like speaking to journalists. But then Adam <laughs> walks in and Dovi's right over. Oh, so what about this? And what about that? What, what, what's Hurling's been up to? And what's, what's Cairoli doing? And uh, so yeah. it, it's really... He sits, it's, yeah, he watches the live timing for practice sessions. I mean, that's dedication. <laughs> yeah, I mean. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the difference between flat track and, and motocross, because what a lot of races will say is that... Um, motocross is the just in terms of an aerobic workout it's much much better than than flat track because flat track sure you're working on your throttle control and your body position and managing sliding and all the rest of it um but you also need to do your 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 aerobic um efficiency right. you also need to, to to raise that and you know motocross is much much better for it than that despite the risk yeah and i and i think if i'm Lynn Jarvis or Pitt Byer or any of these guys, I tell them, I, I send them a road bicycle and say, here you go. <laughs> here, here, here's your cardio effort. Stay off the motocross bike. Yeah, you don't need to send one to Alicia Spargo. He's already got about uh, two or three of them uh, and he's uh, <laughs> pretty close to being professional. The other side of that as well, though, is all the cycling that Alicia does, how big of a benefit is it for him? Because for a long time, we've seen a lot of riders that are great cyclists or great runners or this, that and the other but still make mental mistakes in the course of a 45-minute race. So even though Aleish can go out and you know, probably make himself into a professional cyclist, does it help him whenever he's he's road racing, though, Dave? I, I mean, it, it helps him because it gives him a basic aerobic conditioning. You know, the, the, the first part in not making mistakes is not being tired, so it helps him not be tired. Um, but there, people make mistakes for lots of different reasons. Uh, and to me, I think Aleish's problem is you know not his fitness it's more about sort of the mental control his focus and all the other all the other sort of things so i don't think i don't think bicycling helps with this but i mean you know talking about elder when you were describing jt when you were describing what alden, alden baker does it didn't sound like a lot of fun to be frank and it's that, not. i think yeah <laughs> exactly and that to me is why i think you see a lot of riders do specific things because they have to keep that motivation and you know you're much more motivated to go out and do something which is fun yeah you you hear uh especially in the off season for supercross and motocross which is typically you know october it really ramps up in november and then there's about boot camp yeah exactly uh eight to ten weeks of just pure suffering and torture. Um, and, and these guys really, their, their lives are not much fun at that time. Um, 
it's the same thing every single day, cycling, gym, riding every day. And you wake up and you're sore and you don't want to do it again. And you've got Alvin yelling at you, let's go. And, and he has that watch and it's down to the minute. There is no wasted time. There is no wasted effort. And yeah, it's, it's, you know, we, we steal that boot camp term from the American military and, and the preparation they go through before they're enlisted. It's not all that much different, right? It's of course, riding motorcycles is not like preparing for war, but the discipline gained and the rebuilding that Alden is trying to do with these athletes is very similar to that. Uh, their, their entire life revolves around how are we going to be better at racing a motorcycle? Yeah, I remember a uh, secondhand hearing that Ken Roxon that uh, suddenly appeared on the West Coast, um, you know, during that kind of winter program because uh, Alden Bake is based out on Eastern Florida. Um, and someone asked him, hey, what are you doing here? Why are you here? And he said, well, I, I wanted to eat something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. And he's thinking, <laughs> it sounds that, that gnarly. I mean, yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really curious. And I don't know what my, I, I don't know what to make of it. Um, Alden's program is very, heavy into power to weight ratio, right? It's, it's a term you would hear in cycling a lot. Um, I, I would assume the same in, uh, you know, road racing because it's, it's so important for these guys to be light and, and to gain, uh, as much power as possible. But for motocross, Alden's a big believer in it. So I'll defer to his knowledge over mine, but I don't think that everybody necessarily agrees with that. Um, but that's where you get the stuff where these guys can't eat. You know, you see these guys are rail thin come season. They, they're not allowed to have dairy. They're not allowed to have red meat. They're, they're utilizing a keto diet for a lot of the season Fridays and Saturdays. They're allowed to take, take in some carbohydrates, but I mean, these guys are really building into almost cycling athletes versus motocross athletes when it's come to race time. Um, JT, it's your first time on the podcast and bearing in mind what you told us about the ranch earlier on, we're still going to have to ask you the Sapan clash 2015, um, on what side of the fence do you sit? Oh, I was very, very upset with, uh, with bo both Jorge and with Mark Marquez, uh, in incredibly upset. I, I think I even posted on social media several times about how angry I was, um, but For the Valentino kick, do you, do you, are you on that one? Are you on board I, I tried with that? to overlook I mean, that. I tried to overlook how much contact that. yeah but we see a, <laughs> <laughs> how much contact we see especially in supercross i mean it was yeah. you know it was it was cheeky yeah yeah i think uh the only one that i really was like ooh, that's not good uh was the finati when he grabbed the front brake there because when i rode yeah. when i rode at valentino's i rode finati's ktm that was the bike that i was assigned to so i was kind of followed him and, and through his career and i was like oh yeah i'm that that might be crossing the line a little bit but it's funny uh you know that 2015 incident i i was not a mark marquez fan after that for a very long time and he's he's grown on me like my i've really become a fan um of him after that i've got to spend some time with him at uh, alpine stars events and things like that and uh so i've come around on him a long ways since that that event not so much on lorenzo we're okay i've spoken to him some um, but to me, Lorenzo was always very standoffish and kind of remains that way to this day. He, he doesn't seem like he fits in with a lot of the, the paddock. He's kind of doing his own thing. He doesn't seem like he wants to go ride motocross or flat track or do any of these social things that these other guys are doing. Um, so to me, he was always kind of in his own world a bit. And, and that could be only my perception, but it's just what it seemed like.
Just one thing, JT, then obviously just going back to Fanati, from a professional perspective, was it the professional foul that he did or was it the fact that it was so blatant and then there's so many other ways that he could have tried to take someone off without it being so obvious? <laughs> Which of them annoyed you more? It was pretty creative. I'll give him that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> grabbing somebody, it's, it's aggressive. I, I would say aggressive and creative. Um, I mean, that's, as a racer, you know, the racer in me is like, we're, we're immediately fighting as soon as I get off of this motorcycle for doing that. That's so far out of line and inappropriate. Um, I mean, that I don't even have a motocross reference I could point to that would be something like that. You, you can't do things like that. And can I just ask JT, you say there, we're getting off and we're fighting. Did that ever occur to oh, yeah. your career? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, you know, the, the funniest thing about stuff like that is we have all this protective equipment on and helmets on. So how much damage are we really going to do to each other? The, the most likely <laughs> scenario is we break our hands trying to punch each other's helmets. Um, so yeah, a lot of pushing and shoving and, and we're going to yell at each other, but yeah, nothing really generally ever happens. It does happen in the pits though. There's a lot of pushing and shoving and yelling, but in the end, it's just a lot of noise. What about for uh, 2022 then JT, what's your, your big predictions for MotoGP who you seen winning the championship is there any of the rookies that you're you're looking forward to seeing stepping up? We've obviously been talking about the rookies at the start of today's show. Yeah, and they're uh, I guess they're they're testing uh, as we as we speak or were earlier today, um, if I'm not mistaken. So it'll be interesting to see how uh, you know, Tech Three Tech Trois does um, there. I, I don't have any real expectations um, in that 2014 year that uh, we were mentioning before. We spent a lot of time uh, with. Randy Mamola and Dakota, and he was really good friends with Remy. So we were all running around together throughout that Mazzano weekend. And so I'll, I'll be watching Remy really closely just because I had a little bit of history and, and some insight there as to him and, and, you know, ate every meal with him for over the course of several days. So that was interesting and, and that will draw my attention. Um, but I, I really think we'll see more of the same, right? We're, we'll see the continued development of Peco. Um, I think Fabio will be great again, but I think all of them should be and probably are wondering which Mark Marquez are we getting? Because for me, and I, I could be absolutely wrong and I could be far too biased, but I think if Mark Marquez shows up and he is a hundred percent, I immediately put him as the favorite. I just do. Um, I, I think he is supremely talented. I think he has a team behind him that will do anything to win and to me, he's still the best rider on the planet and he'll prove otherwise. Yeah, but Dave's already said he's going to win the championship this year, JT, so he's cursed. You know, I think you better change your <laughs> prediction. <laughs> well, I, I just look at, I think Mark has this innate ability to overcome things that other riders can't because they could go to a facility where everyone's going in saying, well, the Yamaha won't be any good this weekend. And Fabio isn't good that weekend. Mark could go into a track where everybody's saying the Honda is at a severe disadvantage and Mark will find a way to overcome that. He will override the motorcycle, override the track. And guess what? He's on the podium when his teammates, you know, whether it's Paul or whoever else on the same machine are in 15th because that machine didn't work at this facility, right? He's the only rider that I know of in this paddock that can, the, the conditions are not a limiting factor to a certain extent. He can surpass all of that and make, a bad weekend into a good one. And, uh, that that's really hard to, uh, kind of, you know, look past over the course of a long season. And just on a side note to that, I, I've been really trying to get my friends more into MotoGP and, uh, Adam, you know how much, uh, our friend Steve Mathis will just 
kind of push MotoGP <laughs> to the side and he says it's it's a terrible sport and all these things. And for those of you who don't know, he's a, he's a really big media influence in motocross, but he's the most stubborn person on this planet, bar none. Um, and so when I talk to him about these things, I'm force feeding him this information, by the way, he doesn't want to hear it. He <laughs> doesn't really understand why or how certain motorcycles can be so far off at a certain track, right? Where you go to a track where tight corners and a lot of acceleration and the Hondas should be good there. Go to a track that's more open and flowing and you'll see the Ducatis come to the front and, and the, the Yamahas, if you have really flat, fast flowing corners with a lot of, you know, uh, momentum through them, Yamaha seem to be better. He, he doesn't understand that and, and refuses to even believe it's a thing, right? So that's <laughs> some of the challenges you face with, and Americans in general, they just, you know, as the sport is growing, television coverage is improving over here. A lot of those nuances of the sport are, it's fun to talk with those guys because they, it's a completely new dynamic for them. If you see also that the, you know, the effect something like Drive to Survive has had on the American audiences for Formula One, I mean, absolutely, you know, I, I, you don't know how tangible it is in terms of that connection between the television series and the improved, uh, you know, ratings or the spectator attendances at Austin. But you kind of hope and, you know, you think somebody like the American racing team in Moto2 with Cameron Bobier and, and Sean Dillon Kelly, um, you know, you hope they could perhaps, you know, carry some influence and, you know, some much needed American influence in MotoGP now. And I think as well, it's, uh, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to um, Disney Network owns ABC and ESPN here in America. Well, they made a, a pretty bold decision to put Formula One on primetime live television in America. Sunday mornings, that's a, a really expensive time slot. And they chose to put F1 there when I think Early on, the ratings would have told them that was the wrong decision. So I'm hoping we get some sort of continuation with MotoGP. You're seeing like Premier League Soccer make the, the same move into America. So I think it's coming. We just need the audience. I think things like Drive to Survive help uh, give some personality and allow fans to, you know, once you develop some sort of affinity for an athlete and you understand their backstory, it's so much easier to become a a consistent fan someone who's going to be there each and every weekend morning to watch that race yeah because i know for me i always look at it from the perspective of when i started watching supercross it was just to watch the 450 main whenever it was on on, on a shitty youtube stream the next day and then you know gradually you, you get yourself more involved in it and you'll start to get the video pass and then you'll start to watch the watch the heats and then you'll even be there like oh well the, the 250s I'll, I'll watch that as well and you just gradually build yourself up all the way through and I think that's what needs to happen with an American audience. It's a shame, like for us in World Superbikes, that we're not going to California anymore. That was always one of our most popular rounds. It was always a race that I think, especially now, whenever you've got Garrett Gerloff, you've got a fast American that can be at the front of the field, you could have a big crowd. Like I remember going to Laguna in 2006 for the MotoGP race. Nikki won that day, massive crowd. And you're just looking at it and you're thinking, world championships need to be in places like this we need to be you know in japan we need to have all these races and there's a lot of times when you look at the things that could be done to make the sport bigger in the u.s there's a huge audience there yeah you know at the end of the day there's 350 million people in the u.s if one percent of the u.s audience like motorbike racing that's huge money right so it's just trying to plug your way in to to get those small steps all the way through and as adam knows uh i've been uh, helping with the MXGP side with television broadcasts. And, and that's the exact same thing that they're trying to create. Because when you speak to fans in America that aren't very familiar, 
if you have European broadcasters and all of the riders are European and the teams are European, the world seems very big. It seems very far away when you're watching this event, you know, in Italy or Spain or, or wherever, it, whether it's in Sepang, that these, a lot of people haven't traveled the same way we all have. So to have for MXGP to have an American broadcaster on there makes the world feel a little bit smaller, right? The, the voice sounds familiar. The, you know, the words that I'm using, they're familiar with the terminology they're familiar with. So it just, it becomes much more relatable. And it doesn't seem like this race is 10,000 kilometers away. It could be in the middle of America and they wouldn't know the difference because it sounds the same. So um, I think that's one thing that maybe could be a next step is to have, and we did try it. Uh, we had uh, Ben Bostrom on in like a, a pre-show leading into MotoGP. But I think doing things like that to make American viewers more familiar I think that's a really positive step in the right direction to to creating that fan base. Because if we're just reliant on them tuning in to whether it's the MotoGP app or uh, BNTV or whatever that happens, that's that's asking a lot. That's a really difficult ask for casual fans, dedicated fans like myself. I'm going to find a way to watch it, but casual fans that could take it or leave it, it that's going to be a very difficult one to win. Yeah, and I think uh, we're going to leave with you now, JT, because okay. uh, we've got to wrap up the show. But uh, great to have you on the show. For anyone that wants to follow Jason, it's at Jason66Thomas on Twitter. And uh, always some some pretty good info on that over the course of a Supercross weekend. So, JT, a big thanks for joining us on the show. And as usual, a big thank you to Fly Racing for supporting the podcast as well. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. And uh, enjoy, the, enjoy the first test. Thanks, JT. And we're going to take a, our last quick break on the show. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to just have a quick quick recap on some of the big news from the MotoGP paddock as everyone gets ready for the Sepang test next week and Neil obviously we had uh, KTM launching their MotoGP project for this year and obviously four riders again and uh, exciting lineup we already mentioned about Remy and Raul stepping up to the MotoGP class and then obviously Miguel Oliveira and Brad Binder a lot of pressure on their shoulders this year after what was a bit of a bit of a disappointing year last season for KTM. Yeah, big pressure on their shoulders, I would say, Steve. Um, interesting presentation. It was the first time that we got to speak with uh, their new team boss, uh, Francesco Guidotti. Obviously, he's moved across from uh, Pramac Ducati. And Mike Leitner has uh, taken a bit of a, a backward step, I think, from the whole operation. Um, so it was quite interesting to speak to him. Um, it seems that he is there really to, to try and get on top of the riders and to make sure that he can get the best out of them, I think, from what Pip Byro was saying, Mike's role was maybe a little stretched. He was the kind of general racing manager and uh, they felt that that was maybe too vague or, or maybe wasn't quite specific enough in terms of uh, focusing just on the guys, the riders and the factory team. Um, obviously, uh, last year, KTM made a, made a big play. They signed Fabiano uh, Sterlachini uh, from Ducati, who's kind of considered to be or was considered to be one of uh, Gigi Delinia's right hand right-hand men um, in the Ducati factory. Um, interesting in listening to Binder and Oliveira about his influence. Uh, 
you know, a lot of listening, a lot of standing in the background and observing. I think um, uh, from when he first uh, moved to KTM, which was I think in the middle of last year, and then has been a bit more proactive and a bit more loud in discussions uh, at the start of this year. So it'll be interesting to see um, his influence on the RC16. You know, both Binder and Oliveira were saying that. They don't think there's a, a great deal wrong with the bike. It's just that uh, they went into a bit of a tailspin last year in the second half of the season. And, and one of the reasons for that was the bike wasn't that effective in um, qualifying. So they usually find themselves quite far down the grid. Um, so, yeah, big, big pressure on KTM. You know, they, they are ruthless. They, they don't, um, you know, they don't wait around if they think that someone or something might be wrong. Um, you know, they, they'll generally take a proactive approach and making big changes, big calls. Um, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see just how far up Binder and Oliveira can, can finish and whether Raul Fernandez is maybe going to pose a threat to, to both of them at some point. The thing that I took from the launch is there's um, more segregation now inside KTM. I think, you know, they were winging it to a degree whereby, you know, it, they were reacting. You know, uh, at the start of last year in Qatar was a disaster. I think there was an urgency to get new parts, get new solutions, get new ideas uh, straight from the test team into the race team. Um, and things were kind of muddled and blurred sometimes. And I think now... You know, if you listen to what Pit Byrus said, uh, especially, you know, in through the press materials that have been issued by KTM, um, there's much more separation between the activities of the race team and also the activities of the test team. Uh, I think he used the phrase something like there will be no longer testing parts coming straight into the race team and expected to perform, you know, on a race weekend. And I think without his role, really, he's been plugged in there to refine the ultimate performance on the sporting side not maybe like mike lightner was also having to keep one eye on the test um control the influx of any new components into the race and then assess how they were doing now there's more of a division there um and of course guidotti's experience both previously with ktm and his work with pramac you know means that he will be the guy probably right in the face of the riders together with the crew chiefs um demanding to know what's going on what can be better and bring kind of more urgency to the performance aspect so um you know i guess they have to see if it works but it seems to be a step in in the right direction for them one of the most interesting things which I thought Pit Byra said was uh, what we don't want to happen is to have the crew chief and the chief engineer all standing around uh, immediately discussing the results of, of, of parts in front of the riders where the riders might need a little bit of attention. Um, so it does seem like this this sort of like separation of like the technical side of racing, the technology side of racing, and then the racing side of racing, which is about getting the riders, what they're going to do is give the riders the best bike that they've got on Friday morning and then try and make the bike better through setup, um, uh, through managing the riders, letting the rider get the most out of the bike rather than, uh, you know, keep throwing new bits and pieces at the bike and hoping to, hoping to fix it that way and never actually collecting any sort of useful data because you're missing so much. You, you're trying so many things that you don't actually end up with a baseline where you know that you're starting from. And again, like so much of, we've said this a million times and we'll say it a million times more, uh, like the the bit between the ears is the most important six inches in racing. It's th that's the that's the really thing that matters, the real thing that matters. And uh, Guidotti, I think, has been very much been brought uh, brought in to manage that for everyone, for all of the members of the teams, but especially for the riders. You know, to, to make them feel happy and to make them perform. Are you sure that's the most important six inches, Dave, in racing? <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> 
That's I mean, some people me. some people like to slap another six inches on the tank now and again, just to you know. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that's the average from from what I hear. <laughs> Um, well, I, I was going to no, just take the topic very much off that ad <laughs> and uh, say that it's quite interesting, Dave, as well, because what you're talking about there with KTM are trying to do is similar to what Yamaha actually do in World Superbikes because they've got Nico Canapa in as their rider, coach, their analyst, and uh, you know, basically a go-between between the riders and the technical side. And they try their best to have the rider do his debrief and then the rider just leaves. And then Canapa steps in with the crew chiefs and he talks about the feedback from the riders, how the data correlates to what he sees on track and what the riders are saying. And then after they've had all their meetings, the riders come back in for their end of day debriefs. The team are much more structured in terms of what they're going to understand, in terms of what they need to know that the rider feels and then how they can try and improve it, as opposed to what we see time and time again, where riders just get themselves lost in a sea of data, a sea of discussion, rather than trying to see what improves the bike. And that's where I think a lot of the times the likes of Top Rack in particular is really good for being able to say, this is better, this is worse. And then Phil Marin will work with Canopy to really be able to get into the nuts and bolts of why things are improving. Again, it was interesting that uh, um, Pip Barra said, you know, we, there's going to be a, a bigger role for Danny, uh, Danny Pedrosa, because he's not just going to be a test rider. He's going to spend more time with the riders. He's going to help them uh, more, you know, like doing the, the, the track analyst stuff, watching and seeing what's happening, but also being more and more involved directly with the riders. So I think that an expanded role there seems to fit into that whole thing of listen to the riders uh, it, and having someone who can fit in between and also just stop the distraction from the riders because you know something like what, what Canapa is doing it, you're preventing the discussions and debates with riders uh, and crew chiefs and engineers uh, um, about all sorts of things which they don't really need to be involved in but they end up sort of thinking and worrying about and it's just a distraction yeah, and uh, obviously enough, David, you're flying out to Malaysia now tomorrow for the start of the Sepang 1 test, or the, well, the Sepang test, and uh, you'll be able to see the, the difference that this is making for KTM and for everyone else. Just before we finish up, Dave, what's the, the one big storyline you're going to be keeping an eye on, though, during the Sepang test? Um, honestly, well, I mean, I... There isn't one like that's the that's the, that's what's so great about testing. There's all of it, you know. Like Ducati have just said, uh, I saw an interview with Gigi Delinia. They've got more horsepower. Okay, is it going to be enough? What have uh, Yamaha got? What have they bought? It. I mean, we know that Ducati will have something. They will have something which we haven't thought about, uh, which we haven't imagined. Uh, some sort of some trick up their sleeve. So what's that going to be? Um, what's the Suzuki going to be? When is silly season going to kick off? Uh, are there going to be lots of managers running around talking to a, a rider managers talking to team managers about where they're going to go? Um, yeah, there's just this this just yeah. I mean that's why you like testing because so much happens. Neil, obviously a uh, three day. FP FP four session is just David's uh, absolute dream. What about for you? Eight hours of track action, three days a week, and uh, you'll be back in Barcelona just getting sent transcripts. Obviously, we're still going to be doing a lot on Patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast for Paddock Insiders. We'll be doing our roundups each day, but uh, you're still going to have your hands full. Exactly, as Dave says, you know, twenty four riders, twenty four different storylines, what they've been doing in the off season to improve for this year what they're experiencing 
changes that they've made personally and to their team and to their bike. Um, yeah, there's lots of lots of stuff to, to kind of get into. I was asked to write up a list of 10 things and I could have written a list of, of 20 things to look forward to, to be honest, uh, for the, the test ahead. Um, chief among them, though, I think have to be uh, keeping a close eye on Suzuki and uh, whether their uh, their their efforts really have met the, the expectations of Joanne Mir, and likewise for for Fabio in uh, in Yamaha, you know, because both of those guys just seemed a little bit uh, cheesed off at the end of preseason or at the end of uh, 2021. Um, both weren't really willing to commit, uh, you know, in sort of interviews their long term futures to their their current manufacturers and you do feel that um, the first impressions of the the 2022 package that they have in Sepang might go a long way to making them decide one way or the other um you know where they're going to go uh, next year in 2023 so yeah I think um you know Mir especially I think he was the more outspoken one um after uh, after the end of last year um you know it's funny I was thinking in most years I think 2020 aside Mir finished third in the championship last year it's the best showing by a Suzuki rider in the four-stroke MotoGP era you know most years I think Suzuki would be celebrating that but Mir is that driven and obviously as the reigning champion you know it definitely wasn't that feeling of uh, of happiness or content uh contentness Maybe at the end of last year missing the race win as well near will kind of tempered that a little bit yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I think um, keeping a close eye on Suzuki is uh, going to be top of my list of priorities. Adam, obviously enough, you'll be keeping an eye on Sepang, but uh, far more important, it's it's a few days off after getting the, the first magazine out of the year and loads of really cool features in it this month as well. I really liked the Justin Barsh interview. I thought the Cambodia stuff was really good. But uh, you've got uh, a few days now where you're able to hopefully just... Uh, just charge up the batteries a little bit. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Uh, the magazine is going into a bit of a new era um, this month, so it'll be a, a different format. I hope people uh, will like it. It'll still be free, of course, so have a look online. Um, but last week was pretty busy. I took part in the LCR Honda team presentation, um, uh, which was kind of secret, and it will be you know one of a few launches that we still have to have with, obviously, Monster Energy Yamaha to show their colors, uh, Team Suzuki, and, of course, the LCR Bunch and Ducati. I mean, there's still... Um, a fair few uh, unveilings to happen. I mean, we've seen the new Ducatis already today as we we're recording and there's nothing shocking there. So you'd, you'd like to think there's a little bit of a battle for the most impressive livery because so far it's been pretty dire. But um, doing the LCR Honda thing was a different concept. Um, uh, I wonder what people will make of it. I hope my part is not too horrendous. So I apologize in advance if people see it and they want to switch it off after a couple of minutes. Um, but uh, yeah, other than that, uh, Red Bull KTM, the MXGP team are testing uh, down the road. So I might try to get down and see them and, and get a couple of interviews. Um, that might be the plan over the next couple of days. Not so bad. I'm, I'm away to Portugal now in a couple of days for the Superbike test next week as well. So we're all going to be getting pretty busy again pretty soon. So that's uh, that's good to see. But uh, obviously enough, everyone can follow us on social media at Panic Pass Pod. During the course of the Sepang test, drop us a text or drop us a tweet and we'll answer any of your questions on Sepang next week. And then obviously keep an eye on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast where you can become a paddock insider for $10 a month. And from the Sepang test all the way through to the end of the year, that's where we give an awful lot of additional content just to be able to get everyone up to speed all the way through the course of the season as well. So for myself... Hang on, Steve. Hang on. I think Dave's got a very important um, observation on the liveries of 2022 so far. 
I was just uh, about to say that, um, uh, you know, the Ducati one looks identical. The uh, <laughs> KTM one looks identical. Um, how ironic will it be if the, the livery which we all complain about, the Repsol Honda one, turns out to be the most different? I think that would be, uh, that would be quite funny. It's almost as if corporate colors are there to make sure that you've got that brand identity. It, it's amazing, isn't it? Year yeah. year. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah, who would have thought that the point of sponsorship was advertising your brand and keeping it consistent? <laughs> well, obviously enough, the brand for the Paddock Pass podcast is ably supported by Rental Street and Fly Racing. But we are also always on the lookout for uh, anyone looking to try and improve our brand as well. So for any other potential sponsors, make sure to drop us a message as well. But uh, Dave's on, on his way to Schiphol to get on a flight to Sepang and uh, Neil's going to try and catch up on a bit of sleep. And uh, myself and Adam will try and just make sure that we're ready to get everyone up to date during the course of the Sepang tests as well. So from the four of us, a big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show, but especially a big thank you to uh, Jason Thomas as well for joining us on the pod today as well. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Is that is that a motorbike finger? Not my most aesthetic uh, feature. No, it's uh, yeah, your face is your most aesthetic feature. Ad. We I, all know that. I wish the D. silver fox. I wish it was. It's a footballing accident, Dave. So we don't have to talk about it anymore. Oh right.